This is a main hustle media podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Karankawa people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of that nation, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine which I'm still struggling with, the busiest mixed-race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd, cat mom, mask-making, Gulf Coast Cosmos comic book co-owning Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 147, and before I get into the episode, I do just want to acknowledge that November is Native American Heritage Month or Indigenous Peoples Month. And during the month of November, I do try as much as I can to raise awareness about missing and murdered indigenous women and supporting and or raising funds for the coalition to stop violence against native women. Um, this is something that I became aware of about three years ago through Natalie Evans's podcast, Some Kind of Brown, which I think is on an extended hiatus still. I haven't been able to talk to Natalie in quite a, a long time due to uh, health related issues. But a couple years ago, she did a photo series for Red November, which is a hashtag where you learn where you can follow to learn about uh, what happens in this violence against native women. And then she followed up with episodes from her show about Red November, um, talking to um, educators and or activists within that area. Uh, The major problem about violence towards Native women, girls and two-spirit people is that nobody seems to actively take a role in preventing, protection, or solving the crimes. Some of that has to do with jurisdiction in terms of sovereign land, sovereign lands versus quote-unquote American lands. If the crime is committed on sovereign land, then they have the authority. If the crime is committed on quote-unquote American land, they have the authority. In a lot of cases, American um, authorities don't give a shit. Or they'll say that's a Native problem, but then the Native investigators can't come over to quote-unquote American soil to investigate. And so basically it just boils down to nobody who could do something gives a shit. And when I learned about that through Natalie a couple years ago, I I tried to get a little bit more active in following um, Indigenous content creators and educators so that I just have some visibility to these crimes that are occurring in, in astronomical numbers. Four out of five Native women experience violence every day. The murder rate towards indigenous women is 10 times the American national average of murders against women. In Alaska and and Canada, it is the fifth leading cause of death of native women, murder. So with that being said, I just want to put that call out of, um, for both the groups you come from and the groups you don't, curating your social media in such a way that gives you access to what happens to those people so that you can either 
be an educated ally or if you're from that group be an activist within your group if you can if that's your mission you know it's something that I, I think is important and I, and I try to do but I, I know that I, I don't do a lot and I don't do enough I, I do within my limitations I do what I can um, through Masks by Maine my mask making website during the month of November I do donate a proceeds of any mask sales to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Um, I started this last year when I started the mask company, and um, and every month I, I do choose a different charity to donate a portion of the proceeds to, mostly COVID charities that impact black and brown communities, but every now and then it's usually, if there's something that's affecting black and brown people, that might be the thing that I focus on that month. And so during the month of November, it is a Coalition to Stop Violence against Native women. Um, throughout the month, I'll try to regram, retweet, repost things that I see as well, um, but just encourage you to take an active role in seeing what happens to the people whose land we're occupying um, if you are listening from Turtle Island, and just want to share that. I won't go too long, though, because I did get a lot of this stuff out during the solo episode. I do have one little anecdote, though, that I kind of want to share just because it filled my cup over the weekend. At my comic book shop, Gulf Coast Cosmos, um, this Saturday I was working out on our patio. We have a really lovely comics and chill patio. I was doing the newsletter outside while my business partner worked inside, and uh, we had a family come into the shop, a Blasian family. And so I got a chance to see some adorable Blasian kids and interact with the parents. Um, and so I, I debated when I first saw them whether or not I was going to mention anything at all. But um, I could I read the children as Blasian. And so uh, and then I saw the father and then the mother came in a little bit later. And so I did kind of peek my head out again on the patio and just say, hey, um, sorry like to bother you or whatever but I'm Blasian I see your Blasian kids I'm excited to see you just existing as a family so like I just wanted to say that and ended up in like a near two hour conversation mostly with the mom but uh, on and off with the dad as well uh, he tended to the kids we have a side yard too so they got to run around and play while me and the mom talked and it was just nice to engage sort of accidentally with other Blasian people, Blasian family. Um, you know, if I if I encounter mixed people through the show or through conferences or, or whatever, that makes sense to me. But I, I don't often get these experiences in, in the wild where I just run into other Blasians or, um, or Blasian families. And so we got to talk a lot about, you know, like what was my experience growing up as a Blasian kid, you know, even as an adult, how did it impact my identity? Um, and then I even also talked about things that I kind of wish my parents had done for me to help me with my, uh, as I formed my identity as a child and as a teenager. Because um, one thing my parents did do well, they're both biracial, is they they explained racism to me in a way that I could grasp and understand at a young age and be prepared for. And it's part of what led into the militancy that I that I exhibit. But what they didn't really do was inform or be able to talk about identity in any kind of meaningful way, or even stand up for me in the way that I needed when things had to do with my identity. Like my dad never stood up to his mom about calling me Charlie instead of Charmaine because she thought my name was ghetto. Um, things like that. Um, or my mom not standing up to my grandmother about hiding the fact that we were black to our extended family. Um, 
all of that stuff just kind of got swept under the rug and it's the stuff that I'm unpacking and dealing with today as an adult. So I got to engage with an interracial couple of um, parents of Blasian children on that level. And like I said, it really filled my cup one because there was so much stuff that we just got in our conversation. And two, knowing that there was an opportunity to share with people who wanted to know so that they would be the best parents um, when the kids needed those identity um, questions answered or to listen, um, how to listen or when to listen when the kids are going through it. And I just really appreciated it. And like I said, it filled my cup. So shout out to running into random Blasian families when you're outside because it really, really made me feel good. And I think also because COVID and because generally I'm not outdoor social very often, um, you know, I get to see even less, even fewer mixed people out in the world. Um, And so it was just nice. It was just nice. I don't know. So I just wanted to share that because it filled my cup for that weekend. And I've been kind of riding on a high off of that too. Just like, oh man, just like, there's a cute Blasian family just being together and spending the whole day together and loving each other. And I loved it. Um, okay. So before we get into today's episode, um, I do want to address this issue of audio quality that I've been bothered by. And I've been mentioned the last couple of months since I moved to Houston. I finally figured out what the problem is. So the last few episodes you can hear, and and today you're going to hear it as well, music playing sort of underneath the audio between the interview. And I've been infuriated by this because I can't figure out what it is. I don't have anything else open on my computer. I don't understand. I just assumed I was picking up music from one of my neighbors because of sensitive mics and things like that. Turns out what it is is I am sandwiched between two radio stations Uh, TSU, Texas Southern University, is only three blocks away from where I live, and I can hear things that happen on campus all the time with or without a mic. Um, Their marching band, I hear most of the week, which I love when I'm not recording, um, but I'm also picking up their radio station. And the reason why I figured out TSU is because I finally stayed silent long enough to hear the call letters get brought up in in the recording. And then today I was driving around down the street and I found like a mile away there on the other direction, there is a radio station called KCOH, I think. So I'm sandwiched between two radio stations. And if I have my power cord plugged into my computer, for whatever reason, a power cord amplifies radio frequency. So I had to learn that and unplug it so that I can record. And right now I'm not really picking up any music, but earlier I could kind of faintly hear it. So there's still an issue of something being picked up, um, but not as bad when I unplug my power cord as it was earlier today. So on this episode, you are going to hear some music. It's going to kind of go between jazz and R&B and some talk radio. Um, Unfortunately, I can't do anything about that once it happens in recording. Um, But it was really frustrating in editing this episode for me because I could really hear it this time around. And it's taken me weeks, weeks and weeks of Googling to finally find the right combination of words to put together to have something even remotely similar pop up on the Googles. Um, But it happened today. And like I said, as soon as I unplugged my power cord, it got better. 
So unfortunately, I don't have a solution for my audio problems entirely yet. I was hoping that we would have enough funding to, when we built out our comic book shop, that we would be able to build a studio in it. Um, But that's just not how things went. What we ended up doing is um, doing pop-ups instead, and then we ended up in this small existing space for our storefront, um, which is better for us in terms of getting a chance to introduce ourselves to the neighborhood and to grow. Um, But, you know, I, I just wasn't able to go right into my split life of podcast studio and comic book shop in the same space. Um, so that'll be, that's where I'm going to grow to, but for now I'll still be an at home podcaster until I can have enough funds to rent a studio space or create a studio space. So I'll do my best to kind of keep that audio quality problem at bay, but I figured it out and it's a lot easier to handle now that I know what the problem is. All right. So my guest today is Katrina. Uh, They are a therapist based out of the Bay Area of California, um, and they have their own uh, practice, Passion Fruit Therapy, which I will link in the show notes. Uh, They counsel on uh, mixed raceness, queerness, ethical non-monogamy, in addition to other aspects of therapy. But those ones were the big ones for me because those are pretty much my intersection. So it was exciting to meet someone who um, focuses in that area and those areas. Uh, Katrina is also a longtime listener and um, Patreon sponsor of the show. So another level of being nice to engage with someone who has been involved or, or interacted with the show for quite a while. Um, and, and it was an awesome conversation. Also, uh, they dropped their hybrid food of choice, which was something that sounds delicious. And I hope I find an opportunity to um eat that too but you'll have to listen to the show to find out what that is um so yeah you'll have to listen to the show and then you'll find out um as y'all know militantly mix is a fan sponsored podcast and without the fan support like people like katrina uh we wouldn't be able to keep this going um I don't know if me actively talking about the financial issues of the show lately has led to the exodus of patreon sponsors but we have gotten down from 33 to 29 sponsors at this point. And um, so I'm still actively trying to find other ways to finance the show um, since we are starting to, to lose Patreon sponsors. But if you would like to support the show and help keep us going, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed and sponsor the show as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish. And there's different reward levels depending on what the sponsorship is. If you donate at at least the $5 a month level, you will have access to the video versions of the episodes, um, starting with episode 142. And I was a little bit late again on this episode that you're about to hear's video version. I dropped it over the weekend, um, which is a few days later than I wanted to. But um, until I transition out of this HR job... um, and the business is picking up on the Gulf Coast Cosmos side. It's just been a little bit hectic um, to find balance, but <sighs> I'm going to get there. I'm going to keep doing it. I always do. Um, the reason why I do talk about the financial issues with the show is just for transparency, because I don't want you all to be surprised if one day I get up and hit a recording and I just say, hey, the show is going to have to disappear for a while because of money. Um, I want you all to know what's going on so it doesn't blindside you. Um, so that's why I'm talking about it. Um, I haven't had any complaints or anything like that necessarily, but um, I've had some people say they want to support, but they can't. And I appreciate that as well. But the way you can support is by sharing the show, 
sending a, a meaningful episode to a friend or a coworker or something and let them know that we exist, that, that will help also potentially in gaining more ears and more opportunities for sponsorship. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just doing my best to try to find opportunities to um, get funding in other ways um, so that I don't have to rely solely on fan-sponsored partnership uh, sponsorship. If you would like to sponsor the show but you don't want to commit to a monthly sponsorship, you can go to paypal.me slash mix and drop some coins in the tip jar there. Um, actually, that helps a lot too, um, usually because it's unexpected and it just gives me a way to pay for something that's come up. Um, so that's always really nice. Uh, we have uh, all the everything that goes from PayPal or Patreon all goes inside the Militantly Mixed Bank account. It's not, it's I don't pay myself to do this show yet. Um, it is just paying for keeping the show going. Uh, so I'm still trying to work on trying to get those transcripts paid for again and some of the other stuff that I, I've talked about uh, renewing the website etc um, all of that stuff is coming up due at the same time and I'm just kind of paying for one at a time as I can and uh, and that's it all right so now without further ado <laughs> please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the militantly mixed family Katrina I'm joined by Katrina. Why don't you introduce yourself and let everybody know what your deal is? Let's get into it. Yeah. Hi, my name is Katrina. Uh, I use they or she pronouns. Um, I am a mixed race, non-binary, queer person. Um, I my mix or yeah, my heritage is Mexican American and Jewish American. Um, I also identify as a relationship anarchist. And um, I am a therapist for queer people, mixed people, non-monogamous people, and the whole queer and trans BIPOC community. So. Um, I don't know how we're not best friends already because <laughs> I was already <laughs> that was like almost my entire deal: non-monogamous, ethical non-monogamy, and things like that. Um, I, I have tons of questions about how to deal with race. Uh, uh, relationship anarchy and stuff so maybe off the clock <laughs> we can do that conversation all right so you have been well you've been a member of the militant mixed community for a while but i of course my whole life and transition to to get out here it took forever until i could start rebooking people for for the the show uh what got you seeking out a community like what what was what was your your mission when you were looking for mixed mixed platforms yeah. Um, well, you know, like a lot of people, the folks who were mixed in my life were my relatives. Um, I have lots of cousins and they're all mixed. Um, and uh, especially when I went back to grad school to become a therapist, like race became a front and center sort of conversation. And I found myself in a really difficult position in these conversations a lot of the time. Um, and when I came out of, and I think that may have been when I found the podcast, when I was really like, just, yeah, looking for people to be talking about it. 
you know, because I was sort of stuck in these, in the middle of these conversations, but I didn't know a lot about mixed folks at the time, or I hadn't like tapped into the people that I did know in these conversations. Um, yeah. And then since then, you know, I definitely like serve other mixed race, biracial, no multi-ethnic folks in my practice. And so it's definitely, and, and I've found more, I've sought out and found like more mixed race friends and community. Um, so yeah, so it's like gotten bigger over time, but I just remember finding the podcast and being like, Oh, hell yes. I just get to listen (laughs) to other mixed folks exist out there in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that that was the thing for me is I I grew up super mixed too. All my cousins are mixed. Both of my parents are biracial. So literally all my cousins are mixed. And it was just like, where were they? Like once we grew up and weren't living around each other anymore, it's like, where are all the mixed people? I didn't even realize that the world wasn't nearly as mixed as my upbringing was. Um, And I just was starved for it. That that's that was the whole thing. I was just starved for for being around people who had similar experiences, even if we came from different cultures. We just got it, you know. We, we had two different color parents. We just understood that things were different for you know sometimes, and it, it just feels a lot easier to kind of maneuver when you know that other people kind of you don't have to explain. Well, let me tell you why this is weird for a mixed person, and then I'll tell you the story. Like that, this is exhausting. Um, that also happens in therapy because I've never had a, a a person of color as a therapist and I've also never had a mixed person or queer person as a therapist either. So there's always context like ahead of, of the work that we do. Um, is that, was there, was that tied to why you wanted to go into, into therapy and counseling? You know, it's something that emerged and I think it makes a lot of sense that it emerged um, mm-hmm. going into my grad program, you know, I, I have gone through an experience of becoming disabled and I, therapy was a really big support at that time. Um, I also was learning all about like intergenerational trauma and how it impacts you and how it was connected to my, um, to my mental illness. Um, and so wanting to understand more of that and, you know, my, my, ther- my process of becoming a therapist is in some ways rather selfish because I get to work on myself as a, like a job <laughs> and then I get to also serve <laughs> other people, but right. you know, it's, it, so it's been a process. And then of course, like the intergenerational trauma that has come down is really, a lot of it is related to, related to race, to, you know, immigration, to, mm-hmm. Um, racism in this country and so over time that just came up more and more um, and and I sort of reclaimed my mixed identity through, right. through grad school so yeah I can I can completely relate with that because um, everything that I I do the the podcasting and the co- even creating the comic book shop like I literally created the comic book shop because little Charmaine couldn't walk into a comic book shop without being like, are you lost? You little brown thing, you know, like, and so it's all like everything. You don't even realize that you're just trying to, you're filling the gaps from your, from the pain that existed before. Um, Being able to have these mixed conversations with people are constantly healing. It's just knowing someone else experienced it, you know, makes a huge difference in it. So I can completely relate to making your, your profession be, along along your own personal um, your own personal mission for healing Uh, so before we got recording we kind of talked a little bit about 
about like white assumed presentation when it doesn't even match up to what your actual deal is uh, because of your Jewish heritage is so separate from the white that was around you growing up. When did you realize that you, that people were assuming you were white if, if you even, if, even if, if it was even obvious at any time. And then how does that, how did that mess with your, your whole view of yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always been a thing for me, even when I was a kid, but it's shifted over time. Mm. So like, I remember showing up as a little kid to school at like my mostly in, in my mostly white neighborhood at my mostly white school. And like, um, people would be like, why are you using that weird word for this thing, which would be Spanish? You know, it was just like the Spanish word that I used in my house. Right. They would be confused, like seeing me and hearing words. And I just remember the experience of like, oh, I didn't even know that was weird. What right. Yeah. Um, so it was like that kind of thing and, and not necessarily fitting in with like, well, it was San Diego, so mostly Mexican, but like the Mexican kids who spoke Spanish fluently and I couldn't keep up, but then like the white kids where I didn't quite feel comfortable. And there was always these like weird little things that were being called out, like, you know, about my Jewishness or my Mexican heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, but then as so so I was always super aware, right? Like I am Mexican, I am Jewish, but I'm also the lightest in my family. Like oh, okay. you know, lightest coloring, lightest hair, you know, lightest eye color. And that was always notable too. Like, oh look at look at this little blanquita, you know, Juanita, mm. oh look at how how light and stuff and that being sort of highlighted in this weird way and I was it like a cherishing thing like you were special yeah. in your family because of it yeah mm -hmm. or at least like at times you know for me it felt isolating because I was mm. like oh, I'm different like I it's just pointing out that you're different right right yeah but then when I got older when I moved so I moved up to the Bay Area when I was 18 and you know even in 2005 I, I went to SF State and there's like you know uh, College of Ethnic Studies. There's like a lot of um, politicization of ethnicity and race, which I, I totally stand behind. I think it's amazing. And I was suddenly being called uh, white, right? And and like mm. told that I was white. Mm. And I was like, I think you're confused. Right. <laughs> like, I just didn't get it. You know, I was like, no, I'm I'm Mexican. I'm half Mexican. I'm half Jewish. Cause that mm -hmm. was definitely like the verbiage, you know? Yeah. That's how we said it before. Yeah. I always yeah. tell people that is part of the journey. You start with your percentages and then you work your yeah. way towards <laughs> whatever you feel. Right. Totally. Like growing up in the nineties, I'm half this, I'm half that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so that was really confusing to me. And, um, obviously like it's been quite some time or maybe not obviously, but I've been in the Bay Area for 16 years now and I've had lots of different sort of evolutions of understanding. Um, and now I feel like I identify as like all of the, all of the above, right? Mm -hmm. Like not going to deny I'm white and like red is white in the world. Um, and I benefit from white privilege and I have an experience at the same time, that's just totally not like most of the white people that I meet. Um, yeah. 
Is that a frustration, though? Because I imagine, you know, since it's not my experience, but it's something that I, I kind of heard a few times throughout the show is someone who has a white as- assuming appearance uh, or a white assumed appearance and they don't actually necessarily have a white identity or like even a half white identity necessarily, whatever that means, mm-hmm. um, that you end up getting accused of like allyship, which is... Is not mine. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're. You're. How are you an ally when you're literally an existing person in that in yeah. that identity? But is that something that happens? I mean, yeah. So I was raised in a really like sort of social justice, like progressive family, and mm-hmm. and um, that we didn't use those words in the nineties. Sure. Like, yeah. Right. You know, taught to give back and to use my position, my positions of privilege for good. Right. And so I think over the years, I have felt this like sense of obligation to push through whatever pain that is in order to like stand up for my, mar- my more marginalized like communities and selves. And honestly, like looking back, I-, I feel like I'm coming to a place right now where I'm like, that is exhausting. And it has caused me mm-hmm. a lot of pain, like yeah. that sense of obligation and not, and often like not owning my own pain which then comes up later when I'm like Mm -hmm. not in the conversation or like not doing the thing. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is a weird position. And I think in certain circumstances, it makes me very, very easily triggerable, but then I try to hide it and like show up in a certain way to give a certain message and then walk away. And I'm like, Oh, Wow, that was so much. <laughs> right. It it took me forever to to realize that um I mean, I don't it's not an accident that I called my show Militantly Mixed. I had a very militant idea of well, first my blackness more than anything, but then even just the the lack of being seen as a Japanese person, even by my own Japanese relatives and, and things like that. Um ended up kind of adding to that too. And it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do work for my community. And that's what militancy is about. And, but then it's like, but what is that if I don't look like the people that I'm trying to represent and, um, you know, trying, it it took forever to learn not to be the loudest voice or to take that responsibility on, which I also feel was an obligation because I know that I can talk. I know that not everybody around me can talk or is comfortable and just because they might look the part better than me, you know, like I'm going to be the one I'm going to go ahead and take this on. But in some cases, my presentation or my appearance isn't the right appearance for yeah. the message in yeah. that moment, you know, and that was really hard to to do because in that in that respect, I guess I am, I do have to perform as an ally and uh-huh. and just support those movements or support those causes or support those moments. But the same, like I was, you know, it's almost a physical exhaustion at that point because I'm sitting there trying to do all this work, but I might not have been making that much of an impact because I didn't have a brown enough appearance, you know? And, um, and that, that was really hard. So it was just a question of like learning that and finding a new way of, of doing the work that I can do. And I get, that's when I transitioned from being a black mixed girl to a mixed girl who happens to be, black, you know, like who happens to have black in my mix? Um, because I, I had to learn that other people didn't see me the way I saw me. Um, 
And in your experience, like I, I, and I say this to almost everybody that I get on there, it's very rare that I see someone who has a light presentation and I'm just like, oh, I don't, I don't see, I don't see your mix at all. Like that doesn't happen very often. And in your case, like I can see it. Like I can, I can see that you, you have like a more physical Mexican kind of yeah, yeah. Feel, but like yeah you're pale and your hair is a little bit light and things like that but like I right. I could see it I also grew up in Southern California where I was just constantly surrounded by people that kind of look like you anyway so it's just like yeah I totally uh, so it's just it's just such a frustrating thing because I wish I could I could turn this into a goggle mm-hmm. you know that I could give to other people and to be like see our whole deal because we're we're here and we're existing in it especially if we grew up around both sides of the family, you know, like that, yeah. that have, that have those identities. You, so you touched a little bit on language. So I want to get into that a little bit. And then I also want to get into uh, what aspects of Jewish culture you actually had access to as well. Were you exposed to both, like both cultures and things like that in the midst of you living in San Diego and, and, or were you more, did you have access to more one side of the family than the other? Um, I had access to everything. Yeah, I was super lucky in that way. So both my parents are from L.A. And my mom grew up in East L.A. My dad grew up in West L.A. And um, we, so even though we lived in San Diego, we were in L.A. like constantly visiting Mm -hmm. all parts of the family. Uh, I come from a huge family, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jewish family's huge. My Mexican family's huge. Um, And... It was sort of like every time we show up, there's like 20 to 40 people, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and um, I was raised uh, religiously Jewish in a, a okay. Jewish community, but my mom's side is Mexican Catholic. And mm-hmm. so I grew up going to, you know, every baptism, communion, wedding. Um, so I've, I've sat through a lot of Catholic masses mm-hmm. um, and been around a lot of. Catholicism just in being around my mom's family mm-hmm. um, and my so my mom is one of three and then my dad is also one of three and every sibling married someone of a different ethnicity or race <laughs> you know which I guess just like California in this yeah it's, yeah, it's a very California <laughs> yeah it's a very Californian experience in some ways at least as you know a subset of California mm-hmm. um so yeah every one of my cousins is mixed um in a, in a different way and you know we're so used to I think just operating like oh yeah we're like the same but different you know like mm-hmm. Like there's just so much diversity in ways that show up. And so we have a lot of collectivism, but then we also understand everyone has their sort of like individual right. experience of that. So in on the Jewish side of your upbringing, was it, um, did they, did they include language in, in the, like well, how they interacted too? Did you have mixed English and Yiddish and or Hebrew? Um, I mean, I think I grew up with like a handful of Yiddish phrases that just came mm-hmm. in. Um, and like a handful of Hebrew words and growing up in a synagogue, you know, like we sang all the songs and the prayers in Hebrew. I had a bat mitzvah, so I had to learn like Torah portion, but I never spoke Hebrew conversationally. Mm-hmm. Um, my family is not, um, like is Israeli descended. It's all like Eastern European mm-hmm. descended. Um, and then, yeah, and my dad was like 
he kind of stepped away from Judaism as a religion and then like stepped back to it when me and my sisters were born. Mm. Um, and then on my mom's side, like my mom speaks Spanish fluently and speaks Spanish to her family. But when we were kids and she tried to like speak it to us, we were like, no, oh, yeah. You know, and she would speak to us in Spanish. We'd respond in English, and we were super whiny. And she kind of gave up. And of course, now I'm like, now we regret it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I've like worked myself up to conversational. Um, My sister is fluent now. She Mm. uh, studied abroad in Mexico City, and then married Mm. someone from Mexico City. And so, like, um, there's more Spanish in my life now as an adult, like every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like there was a gap, you know, um, in moving away from Southern California and then like coming back to it as like an older adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I feel that too. Like there's just times I'm trying to do my best to reclaim language as much as possible, but there's still, there's still words I just always use in Japanese because we always use them in Japanese and, uh-huh. and things, but that doesn't, it always makes me feel like, you know, false in some kind of way because I can't finish a sentence or, or something. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's just those moments of just like, Oh, uh, you know, the invalidation that happens when someone looks at you and is like, Oh, you didn't yeah. finish the sentence. So you're not, you're not clearly this thing. And then the internal invalidation of just like, you know, why didn't you stick with this when, because my grandmother wouldn't speak Japanese to us because the military told her, you know, it's already bad enough. You got half breed kids and stuff. Um, and until I was in college, when I was actively taking Japanese, well, actually, then she didn't even help me. It was when I was in my 30s that she would start to speak back to me. But then I let that momentum kind of die because I was always busy. And, and now I'm sitting here in my you know 40s going like, if I don't get this language down, I'll never get I'll yeah. never be able to have a single conversation in Japanese. And, and that, that stresses me out. <laughs> Makes me yeah, sad. And like for me too, because my accent is really good. Um, so I'll speak something fairly simple. And then people speaking to me are like, oh, you speak Spanish. And, then start, and you're like, you know, like oh, crap, like slow down, please. And, you know, it's like my dream, one of my dreams, you know, to be able to offer therapy in Spanish. But, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm like just at like like I'm at like traveling slash simple conversation level. Right, right. The leveling up is is tricky. Yeah, the worst experience for me is we actually had a Japanese exchange student living with us um, at the co- like a college age ja- uh, Japanese exchange oh. student living with us, and there was a, a conflict in our in our household, but we could not place it because her English wasn't strong enough and my Japanese wasn't strong enough. And so she just kept repeating the same sentence, hoping we would get it. And I'm like searching for a word. I'm like, I've never had to deal with conflict in Japanese before. So I like literally could not. So it's like been 15 years and there's just times she pops into my head and I'm just like, what happened? You know, cause it made her so whatever it was made her uncomfortable enough to like leave. And, oh. and we just don't know. Like we, we seriously don't know. A hundred, we, we have like a, an idea of what it could possibly be, but I just like, yeah. there's so many times when I just wish I could go back and learn enough Japanese so that I could have just figured out what she thought happened um, yeah. and what we thought happened, you know, of whatever, whatever the, the situation was. It was so like, so it's one of those things of those tests that you just like, oh, 
because my ex, the same thing, like my pronunciation is actually pretty strong, but my vocabulary is terrible and my oh. pacing is incorrect. Like the way that I pace out a sentence isn't right. And so okay. I just like, there's I so many things. People are like, oh. like well, where are you from? Like, yeah. <laughs> You're like, no, not you. Don't ask me that. That's what white people do. <laughs> like, where's your accent from? I'm like, I don't know. I don't like, know. Nowhere. California, but also TV and I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> um, th- that's pretty funny. So, um, you, so you talk about, so obviously you exist in a very intersectional space because as a, as a queer identified person, as a mixed identified person, um, do you, do you find that that intersectionality, and this is a completely selfish question on my part, um, do you find that that intersectionality aids in some of the conversations and how you deal with, depending on if, a, if someone comes to you, approaching you on maybe the LGBT side or, or the mixed side, do you find that something that exists on one side actually helps in how you pro- help people process on the other side? I mean... Sometimes, yes, definitely. But I think that even just um, my intention of embracing ambiguity is probably the most sort of important or like recognizing like all these complexities and factors and how Mm -hmm. like for some of us, for a lot of us, they don't just settle into one thing, you know? So I, I end up bringing in the idea of ambiguity um, and complexity in a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of folks who are like monoracial or uh, monosexual even um, are, don't have as much experience around. Right. Yeah. Um, and I definitely have that experience of like, a lot of us exposed to like a, being a bit of a chameleon, you know, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Up, um, bringing certain parts of myself forward in order to, to translate in order to uh, serve who it is that I'm in front of. And mm-hmm. so this has meant that like my, my, um, my caseload, the folks I work with are like very diverse. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I can go from like working with one person over here and then show up over here and maybe be, using totally different languaging in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but al- always trying to like, you know, find those like pieces that they actually want, like address you know, towards their goals or like, yeah, but I'm, but I'm always highlighting ambiguity because I think so much of us like struggle with mm-hmm. trying to fit into boxes and that's like, so, you know, it can be so painful. Right. right. And, and so I try to like, Let's just erase those little like box lines and it's so weird because all of us live in an ambiguity in some form, but we're we're so fo- we're so like trained to be the same as everybody else, but also super ne- unique at the same time as we're like going through puberty and going through the things, but we're really just trying to fit into an archetype. And yeah. if we don't, and then we're just there's something wrong with us, we're the weird ones or whatever. When it's really like literally all of us are the weird ones, if we just if we just understood. <laughs> live in ambiguity all the time versus someone like you and I, who literally are the physical embodiment of an ambiguity um, Mm -hmm. of ambiguity. And just, you know, I guess we're forced into it a little bit earlier than, than some of the mono fill in the blanks, mono gender, mono racial, mono, whatever. Um, 
So uh, one of the things that I do, okay, so this is not what, this is not my end question that I usually ask, but I do sometimes just like to ask this. Do you have any hybrid foods that sort of serve both your, both your Mexican and your Jewish heritage that you like to put together? I, I do. Yes, absolutely. So the, the big one that comes around every year is that um, we always try to have like a latchka party, like a Hanukkah mm-hmm. latchka party. And so um, <clears throat> maybe 10 years ago, we realized that like a really good topping for latkes is guacamole. <laughs> right? Like it's really good. And especially growing up in San Diego where you have like carne asada fries, we already have this like weird hybrid yeah, yeah. Mexican food and they put guacamole on fries. And we're basically like, that's the same that's thing. The same and thing. that's it's delicious. Yeah. <laughs> we always have latkes with sour cream, applesauce, guacamole, and salsa. Mm. For sure. So like that's yeah. just become a staple. Um my sister, who's a bit more of a cook than me, I think last year, which of course we were in lockdown, so it wasn't possible to share, um, she made sopa azteca with matzo balls. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> so you definitely do that. And and also, actually, one of the few things, like few um, moments of representation from my childhood, um, my parents found this book that's called Jalapeno Bagels. And it's like a children's story about uh, a family. I can't remember. I think the mom was Mexican and the dad was Jewish. And they open up a bagel shop and they have a jalapeno bagel. And that was perfect that you had that when you're younger. That's awesome. Yeah. So that I always think of that too. That's sweet. Yeah. I, I think now it's a little bit easier. There's going to be more mixed books out there for people to kind of see themselves earlier on. Um, and that was really tough for me. I mean, when was there ever going to be a black Japanese, British American, like, like story or whatever like I was never expecting to really really see myself so I always had to find it in other ways like Jubilee is one of my favorite X-Men characters she's Chinese not Japanese but she's raised by white people because she's an adoptee so I was like "Ah, kind of I got different color parents than me so yeah sure that worked Um, so that's cool to have something like that that like is the literal trying to mix something that you know like jalapeno bagel that I really like that that's sweet uh, I love asking that question just because I'm curious because there's so much crossover in our food. Sometimes we don't even realize it. Um, but I think putting guacamole on the, uh, on latkes is like, yeah, it's the same. It's, it's potato. Yeah. Why not? Or spread the, spread the word about <laughs> That's awesome. D- did you feel that it was all that difficult um, maneuvering as a child being that way? Or did you just kind of go with the motions of whatever people were doing to you on the outside? Um, you were just kind of accepting it like in school or, you know, whatever they talked, they thought you were, you just kind of rolled with it or was it difficult for you to try to be you? Yeah. Um, in my family, I felt comfortable being me. Um, and I definitely had experiences growing up where I didn't have to think about it. Um, but I also have quite a few memories seared into my brain that I like was in this position of having to defend myself from, from all sides, right? Mm-hmm. Like so many different sides. I can remember being in elementary school and joining, uh, Mecha, like through my elementary school. And it was like, you know, for all the Latina girls and like, mm-hmm. I couldn't hang more than like a month cause it just, I just, 
it was so confusing for me and, and confusing mm. for the other girls. <laughs> right. <laughs> like they were like, what are you doing here? And like, you know, they were mostly They're speaking like, Spanish and yeah. Um, so, so there were definitely like these moments um, growing up that I was reminded, like, I don't, you know, I don't fit. This doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I think our groups need to learn that there needs to be a pocket for those of us because some of us are just in the cross of it. Like we're just yeah, imagine we got we got you a little bit, but not enough, you know. Yeah, like if there had been a mixed club, like there are for other sort of ideas. Yeah. When I was growing up, I would have just been like, oh yeah, I would have exploded. I tried to do something like this a little bit, not necessarily a mixed race group, but. Um, I, I partnered with a girl to do a club in high school called the Agora because we were trying to be like a multicultural club where everybody can kind of talk and share their stuff or whatever, because I needed something. I was in I was in the Black Student Union. I tried to do the Asian one, but the Asian one is where I really didn't feel comfortable. The Black Student Union made me feel comfortable. But every now and then the joke would be about a light skinned person or a mix, you know, or the or you mix. That must be your white side. And then it'd be being constantly saying, like, I don't have a white side. Like I do in that ethnically I have white in me, but I have no cultural whiteness. So I'm just like, I don't have a white side. So we were trying to do that, but it didn't last. It lasted like two meetings and then no one else came back. And uh, we just didn't have a lot of buy in with the school. So I didn't get my life that way. Um but to see that the the colleges all have them now, or a lot of the colleges are starting to have them now, and and that they're you know orchestrated by even mixed, um, like they're finding mixed professors to to be their support and things like that has been yeah, awesome cool. to see that that exists now. But you know, I mean, I guess every generation's got a set something that they got to fight for to try to to make it a little bit easier. I do I do think that intersectionality and mixedness is going to be a lot easier to process as people get older because now there actually is training for parents on, you know, if, if, as long as they're looking for it, they can, they can start to engage on that and, and help their little mixed babies grow up. But before we start to wrap up here, uh, I always like to ask my, my guests, what do they love most about being mixed? Because we have so many trials and, and things like that growing up. Um, you know, is there just something that you super love about being mixed? Um, well, I think I've mentioned my cousins a few times already, but like, I just got to go back to LA for the first time for a sort of like family reunion thing, like last month. Mm -hmm. And I just love being around my family and I miss it being up here in the Bay area. And I love, I just love being around all my people who get it and they're not, yeah. It's not because we're all the same, but it's also because we're all different. And my partner even noticed this because it was the first time that they were meeting a lot of my family in person. And they were like, yeah, it's not that you all like, you know, sort of expect everyone to act the same. It's that you all act different and that's okay. Yeah. And but I, we're all family, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. So just going into spaces where like we all act different, but we're still interdependent, right? Like it just feels like this amazing sort of, independent, interdependent, um, you know, collectivist individual mishmash. And that's, I think that's the best part about being mixed is that I feel really good about collectivism and I feel really good about individualism in different ways. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Uh, do you want to share any, like how people can find you or your practice? 
before we wrap yeah. up? So my practice is Passion Fruit Therapy. Um, and you can find me at passionfruittherapy.com. And um, for now, my only Instagram is private, um, but I'm open to sort of adding people on a case-by-case thing. <laughs> <laughs> Not to like say there's any, you know, criteria. No, I got you. I hardcore regret that I let my mixed girl main what was my per- my personal one until I made militantly mix open because now people sometimes reach out to me through mixed girl main and it's just like man this is where I talk about my cats and yeah. you know like my 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 meals I don't want to be addressed here necessarily for you know some heavy heavy moment of mixedness of panic or something like that because they oh, I put mixed in my in my thing so yeah I get it like I I'm I just recently pr- made my mixed girl main private and I'm kind of combing through the follows to see uh-huh. like do I know you if I don't know you I gotta let you go so I can have like join the other pages I'll I need something private so I don't I don't blame you for that one <laughs> that's more of a I'll invite you kind of a thing I think sometimes all right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this. I It's always just such an awesome thing to think that like this random thing of pressing record gave me this opportunity to meet and talk to a lot more mixed people. So I appreciate you being a part of that. And um, since you do listen to the show, as you know, once you get on the show, you are now a cousin of Militantly Mixed. So thank you for being my cousin. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Honestly, it's it's a privilege. And I, I am just so excited like oh wow you know i get to be involved in this project now and right join you know join the masses of cousins yeah cousins cousins around the world i i really just hope that one day when you know hopefully there's not a continued this pandemic and hopefully another future pandemic isn't happening and there's a literal time where we can actually have a retreat which is what i wanted to do a couple years ago um so we can actually like be around each other and see because there's some names that I just know like I've seen some of these names for years at this point and engage with some people through social media it'd be nice to actually have a, a cousin reunion at some point or you I guess union for the first time yeah. um, <laughs> whatever that would be called uh, that would be awesome but thank you so much for, for participating in this I appreciate it thank you Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.